0: We are going to conclude our series on grace today Uh, We've been on it for about six, seven, eight weeks I'm not quite sure And if you'll turn with me over to the book of Titus, chapter 2 Titus, chapter 2 We're going to read a portion of Paul's letter to Titus The title of this message is Partnering with Grace The ABCs of Grace The ABCs of Grace Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 Paul, the apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and the man who has um, a father-son relationship with Titus, though they are not genetically connected, they are spiritually connected. And Paul considers Titus so loyal and beloved that he calls him his son in the Lord, my true child of the faith. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Lord, help us as we study. Three things. One, what it means for grace to appear. That's the A. Two, what grace brings. That's the B. And three, Grace coaches. That's the C. The A, B, C's of grace. Paul says to Titus, grace appeared, it showed up. What does he mean? Well, there was a period of time where grace would make an appearance, but it would be fleeting. The law was the standard by which people needed to know that they were either righteous or unrighteous before God. And for the most part, They found out how unrighteous they were. The law was what God had to institute when He was when He was trying to establish a people as a nation, no longer just a family, and to make sure that there was civil obedience, there was order, there was a prescribed way of worship, and that people could live out their lives, having confidence every day that today was going to be similar to yesterday. Peace and safety. And the law allowed them to make sure they not only had a civil society, but personal conduct was valued, that you really, you really prized the idea that God got into people's lives so that they could respond best to all the circumstances they would face. It wasn't just about societal order, but it was about personal obedience. And so the law was instituted in order to be the guide rails for all of that. Now, as important as the Ten Commandments were and all of the case law, the statutes, and the ordinances that followed, we have to remember that as we live today, the period where the law was in force was the shortest period of recorded redemptive history in humanity. Before the law, there was recorded about 2,500 years of human history, from Adam to Abraham, and then all the way to Moses, makes some place in there about 2,500 years. Now, it doesn't mean that there are 2,500 years of history, but this is all we have with respect to genealogies, and that's how we can add the length of time these people lived is recorded up to 2,500 years, from the time of Adam, basically, to the time of, of Moses. So for 2,500 years, people just figured it out. Then came the time of Moses, up to the time of Christ, where the law was enforced with respect to righteousness before God. The law still has application to our life in that it helps us know better from best and bad from good, and it, it, it keeps conduct checked in check so that people don't behave poorly and get away with it. There's some penalty. But with, with respect to righteousness before God, the law no longer has any effect or application to our lives because of what Christ did. From the time of Moses to the time of Christ it was 1,500 years. And the time of Christ to us is 2,000. So the time before the law and the time after the law are both longer individually than the time of the law. But the law was that which kind of dominated people's attention because everybody couldn't figure it out on their own and they needed some guideposts to know exactly how to respond to God and how to respond to humanity and what do I do here. And the law was helpful... But it didn't do everything that mankind needed. It couldn't save him. It basically let him know how messed up he was. Now, it did keep disobedience in check to some degree. It it prescribed best behavior. But most folk weren't on their best behavior all the time. And so it allowed people to really understand, and this is one of the purposes... It allowed people to understand just how messed up they really were. That they couldn't obey the law all by themselves. That there was something on the inside of them that was bent wrong. And they had to constantly pull the reins back in just to try to do right. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Because you're just staring at me. (laughs) let, Let me give you an example. People say mankind is good in getting better. I beg to differ, because I've had children, (laughs) and 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 I, I love my children, all seven of them, wonderful human beings. They all love God, but none of them came out knowing how to share. None of them came out knowing how to be kind. None of them came out intrinsically figuring out what it meant to be givers. They all came out knowing the word mine. I didn't teach them. (laughs) I mean, parents, did you teach your children mine? I don't know where they get it from, but they knew it. I never had to teach them how to be selfish. Never. I I didn't have to teach them how to slap somebody, how to hit their sibling. They didn't even watch TV. We we wouldn't let them watch certain violent programs, but it just came natural. Just came natural. Where did they learn this? Except that they were bent wrong. Oh. Something on the inside of them was always going this direction, and parents' responsibility is to pull it back to center and say, "No, don't hit your brother. Share your GI Joe, your Batman figurine. Please be kind." Don't be so. We had to teach him that. So if mankind is good and getting better, don't you think after about twenty thousand generations we should have got it right by now? The fact is, we all have this issue. It's called original sin. It doesn't mean that you, when you sin, you become a sinner. It means that you are a sinner and therefore you do sin. That we are messed up and we got it from Adam. Adam blew it and he could only produce what he was. So he couldn't make righteous people because he was unrighteous. And so we've all inherited his spiritual genetic flaw. Thus God had to figure out how in the world do I keep mankind from killing one another? How do I help them understand the best way to live? Because they are bent wrong. There were a couple of examples in the Old Testament before you get to the law that were pretty amazing, but it wasn't on mass. It's just not like humanity got it. You have Abraham, who was just an amazing human being. He didn't have any Bible. He had no church. In fact, he was looking for you. Hebrews says that when he went out from the land that God called him to the land that God called him, it says he was looking for a city who had its foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Oh, well, What in the world has God always wanted to build but his church? So he, he thought, well, God's calling me to a people. So he was looking for y'all, but y'all weren't there. Nobody was there. And, and once he got there, God said, I'm going to make you a people. And from you will come the folks through whom I bring my word and my promises. And so he was somewhat disappointed that he didn't get to connect with somebody who could help him walk out this walk. Give him some pointers on how God wanted to move in humanity and what it was like to live with him. But he had nobody. He was the first. But he figures it out. And that without a Bible, that without a pastor, that without a church. He just figures it out. He even figured out tithing. He had this amazing victory. Had to bring back his nephew Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, that infamous city that God destroyed. But before he destroyed it, there was a group of people to whom Sodom and Gomorrah had to submit. Another kingdom. And they decided they didn't want to pay taxes to that kingdom any longer. And so that kingdom came to beat them up and to take them captive. And so they did. Because Lot was living with them. And Lot happened to be Abram's nephew. And he was Abram's charge because Abram's brother, Haran, who was Lot's son, died. Abram was the eldest son, and so he had to care for his brother's kids. Did you follow what I said? Yes. So Lot was his nephew, and Lot went down to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now Sodom and Gomorrah had been taken captive, in Lot, and, and, and Abram said, Oh, I got to go get my nephew. I don't want to fight nobody. I don't want to fight. So he rides, he mounts, goes and gets nephew, Goes and gets Sodom and Gomorrah, brings all the people and the goods back. This was a victory he should not have attained. He knew God had done something special for him. And so he says, this is amazing here. I I couldn't have done this on my own. And so he says, I got to give to somebody. Somebody comes out to meet him. He's called the king of Salem. And Salem happens to be in the Hebrew, peace. And this king of Salem comes out with bread and wine offers it to to Abram and says, blessed be Abram and blessed be the most high God of Abram who has given victory to you today. And the reason this king comes out to meet him is because nobody thought that Sodom and and Gomorrah were worth saving. Everybody thought those good riddance, good riddance. Nobody thought What about you was worth saving? Come on, I mean, it, 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 it's not like we add so much value to the kingdom that God had to say, oh, I can't do without you. <laughs> You're so amazing. You are, woo! You're so kind and loving. You never think about yourself. You're always thinking about other people. You are absolutely what I thought about when I thought about creating create, humanity. I don't think that really came across God's brain. The reality is we're all messed up. And at some point, somebody out there is thinking that's, that God, you have any more of that fire and brimstone? Ooh. Somebody out there is thinking that about you. Ooh. I mean, I know you're thinking about it about somebody. <laughs> somebody hurt you real bad. You're having a hard time forgiving. And that, that thing comes up on the inside of you, boy, you know, I may not be able to get them. And I'm just letting you know. Vengeance is yours, says the Lord. Have your way. Have your way, oh Lord. Have your And just remember, for every person you're thinking like that about, they're thinking about you. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? I'm really grateful for his mercy. And the fact that, that he, he likes people that I don't. Because that means he likes me when others don't. He's an amazing God. He just doesn't think like us. Doesn't think like us at all. Abram brings back all these people, a victory he never thought he'd get. This king comes out to meet him because everybody thought Sodom and Gomorrah ought to be a people that are wiped away anyway. It's evidenced by the fact that when the king of Sodom comes to Abram and and talks to him about terms of negotiation... FYI, please help me. What bargaining position does the rescued have? If you're rescued, you're first, the first words that come out of your mouth ought to be, thank you. Not, let's make a deal. Something's wrong with this dude. Abram just rescued, risked life and limb to rescue this guy. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this. Hey, I'll give you all the goods. You can take all the spoilers. Give me the people. What's wrong with you? You want to bargain with me when I bargain? Do you know to the victor goes all? Do you know Abram could have, could have set himself up as king of Sodom? That was his right to do so. He just won them back. And so this man has no bargaining power that he left him alive. His mercy. Abram says, I'm not taking a thing from you. This gives you a picture into why nobody thought the promised land. These people were worth saving. They were a mess. They didn't even know how to say thank you. And I'm so grateful that God saved me even though I wasn't worth saving. He sent his son. Abram says this, I couldn't have done this on my own. I'm going to give a tenth of everything I got to the godliest person I know which is this king and this priest. He was king and priest of Salem. Salem means peace. King, this is too much like who Jesus would be. Prince of peace, came and brought bread and wine out. It looks like a Christophany, which is an Old Testament version of who Jesus would be before the incarnation, which is his manifestation in flesh. And then Abram says, I'm going to give a tenth of all to this man. And so he gives a tenth of everything he has because he realizes God has wrought such a great victory for him that he could not have done on his own. And God said this, this is so great, I'm just going to codify it. Whenever I produce my law, I'm going to tell my people, this is what you ought to do. Now, you probably won't do it out of the goodness of your heart like Abraham because he was a really amazing human being, but because I want you blessed anyway, I'm going to make it a law so you will do it and be blessed. And though he tells us, we still have a hard time. Has he not wrought great victories for you? Hasn't he done far beyond whatever you could do for yourself? And you have a hard time giving him 10%? Thus, God put the law in place. Because he knew people would have a hard time doing what they ought to do. And the law again helps keep boundaries, but it doesn't make righteous. It just reminds us of what we should do and evidences the fact that we usually can't do it. That allows us then to understand our need. So when the law couldn't fix us, God then said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring grace. Grace appeared. Now, you know what grace is? Grace is that stuff ...that gives you the ability to do what you could never do on your own... ...and become what you never could become on your own. It is the unmerited favor of God upon your life. It is that which we do not deserve and cannot earn. It is the stuff that doesn't just make you innocent. It makes you righteous. God never wanted you you, you to be just innocent. Surely not guilty. But mercy, the flip side of the grace coin... Grace gives you that which you don't deserve. Mercy gives you, doesn't let you receive what you do deserve. That's right. That's right. So we deserve death because we all are sinners. The wages of sin is death. We've committed criminal activity against the kingdom of God, and we are deserving of punishment. That punishment, worthy of, we, we, we should get, is death. But God didn't want us to die, so he sent his son to die in our stead. And the beauty is that, you know how you write on the whiteboards with those funny pens that are erasable. But, but when the whiteboard is old, you know what happens? You write on it, then you erase it, and what happens? still there. Still there. And you just you keep going, and it won't come off. With God, it all comes off. There's not even the residue that you did anything wrong. And if that is all he did, I would be eternally grateful. If he just wiped my slate clean and made me innocent, no longer guilty... Woo-hoo. Hallelujah. But he didn't want to stop there. Innocent wasn't enough. He wanted to make me righteous. Hallelujah. How do you make somebody Hallelujah. who's already done wrong right? How do you do that? How do you make a convicted felon? Three times, multiple felon, This is a practice criminal. How do you make bread, a practice criminal, now an upstanding citizen who is worthy of the Medal of Honor? How does that happen? It doesn't on my own. I can't get it on my own. It would be enough if somebody just expunged my records. Wow! But to stand before the president and act as if I have been the greatest citizen in America to receive a medal. I can't do it on my own because my record already speaks for itself. So how does God do this? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. This is what grace does. It appears to do this. <laughs> Not almost as in it appears, but it shows up to do this. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the, right- the righteousness of God in him. So what God did is he said, I'm going to allow my son to go on the cross and take all of your whoopings humanity's whoopings, the ones that happened before who sinned and the ones who will come after who sinned. I'm going to let him take all of the punishment for all of humanity's sin. And not only am I going to put the punishment and the penalty of their sin on him, I'm going to actually put their sin on him. He's going to become it. His flesh is going to become so corrupted that it will be the manifestation of sin in flesh. I don't even know what that is, but I know enough to know it's not good. It's not good. And it was so not good that this healthy, strong human being that could go out in the wilderness for 40 days and fast in the desert and come out ready to defeat the devil and take on the world, died in six hours on the cross. Nobody died in six hours. The cross was intended to be an instrument, instrument of torture, not execution. Yes, people died. That was the point. But it was supposed to torture them longer than any other method the Romans could think of without them exerting great effort. And so you had nails in hands and you had nails in feet. The feet were overlapping one another and they put one nail through both. Some people would last a week on the cross. You didn't die of, of, you didn't bleed to death, hemorrhaging. You died generally of suffocation. Because the the trauma that that was produced through the elements, you were outside, basically naked except with a loincloth on, and... Uh, very little nourishment, very little water. The fact that you were hanging like this caused all the fluid, as inflammation filled up in your body, to flow towards your your lungs. And your lungs filled with fluid, and so you could barely take a breath. And the only way you could take a breath was if you pushed up on the nail that was in your feet. (sighs) And people, depending upon your own strength, could do that for days. They could do that for days. But with Jesus, he had some other people crucified beside him. And on either side were two criminals. <laughs> worthy of being punished by Roman law. Jesus was not, but they were. They had done some things, I guess, worthy of death. And, and, and both of them were doing just fine. The rule was on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was about to, to come to pass. The Sabbath was a day where the Jews took off and, and they did no work. But their day, the Jewish day, started at 6 p.m., and it went all the way to the next day at 6 p.m. And there was a rule that you could not leave a man hanging on a tree on the Sabbath. So the cross was a makeshift tree. So anybody who was crucified Friday at noon had to come down by Friday at 6. And no, everybody knew that nobody would die in six hours. So what they came to do is they came to break his legs, break the, the prisoner's legs somewhere between 4 and 5 o'clock so that they couldn't push up and get a breath, and they would suffocate quickly. They broke both legs, both of the pairs of legs on either side of Christ, these prisoners. But they they went to Jesus, and he had already expired. Nobody expires that quick when you're crucified. Not a healthy man like Jesus. What caused him to die so quickly? The sin of the world. He became it on the cross. He took our whooping, and he took our sin. The exchange was this. I have taken all of your mess. I have been the substitutionary death so that you don't have to die. And now I am not just making you innocent. I am making you righteous so that when God looks at you, it's as if he sees me. A person who lived on the planet and never did anything wrong, didn't commit one sin, though he was tempted in every way just like us, Hebrew says. He never committed one sin. So when he died, Everything that kept us from God died with him. And we now were able to be made as if we had lived in such a way as to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Excellent citizens, most upstanding human beings in the kingdom, righteous before him. This is what grace comes to give. Where the law came to give condemnation about what we could not do, grace brings righteousness that we could not get. You're still looking at me with no facial expression at all. (laughs) Grace appeared in order to give us this. And I'm begging you. It's a great deal, y'all. It's a a great deal. I mean, if you know how messed up you are and what God gave to try to fix you, why would you want to delay? Let grace, which appears, give you what it intended when it came to make you righteous, then what does it bring? It brings salvation to all men. Salvation that allows us to go to heaven, glad for that. Glad I'm not going to hell. I'm really, really glad about that. But it's not just about salvation and going to heaven. It's not just about what happens when you die and no longer live here on the planet. It is about being saved from things while you are on the planet and being saved two things while you were on the planet. So God wants to save you from the things in which you always fall. Somebody came to me one time and said, "Pastor, you know me, living as a Christian is hard." You know it's a hard life. It's it's just difficult. You know, you always got to say no and boy, it's just hard. I said, hmm, "Yeah, it's not easy." I mean, you, you, you gotta say no to sin, yeah. But 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 how's living as a not Christian? How's that going for you? <laughs> uh, 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 you? You committed adultery on your wife, right? Yeah. How's that going? How, how's the restoration going on? Well, well. Oh, pastor, it's hard. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. How your you, your kids loving you? No, they don't want to talk to me. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Yeah. I said, it might be hard being a Christian, but I like my version of hard better than yours. This is a better version of hard than trying to recover like that. Sin always messes you up. It destroys your life. And the recovery period is is so difficult. Not impossible, but so difficult. This version of hard reaps me great fruit. I get to benefit from going through my version of hard and that my family loves me. I'm, I'm living right. I, I, I don't have to recover from stuff that I did wrong. This version of hard is so much better. I have been saved from the other version of hard. Salvation came to me to save me from that which I should not do. I love it when, when God comes with his... Divine Holy Ghost tow truck and pulls you out of the ditch into which you've driven? I love it. I mean, I need him for that. I really do. But I love it better when I see the sign that says bridge out right, right, right. and I don't keep driving through the signs. Yes. Oh, 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 I need to stop. Yeah. I need, I'm going to go this way. I, detour, detour. Yes. Yes. Salvation is that which is supposed to help you not sin. It saves you from making bad decisions. It saves you from temptation. That's the power that is available to us. It comes to bring salvation and what you are called to, not just what you are saved from. There are things to which you are called and you don't know yet. God has a great plan, a great destiny for your life. You are purposed as a human being. That's why he made you to do something really special. And you need to figure out what you are saved to. God What do you have me for here? Seek him on that. And then lastly, it not only brings but it coaches. It says it it instructs us to deny ungodliness, sensual desires. Grace is a fabulous coach. It will help you figure out how to do do this for me. Just humor me. Say with me, no. (laughs) See how easy that was? You just slow just no 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 you have the ability to do that and you need to practice it whenever sin comes to your door when the, when the opportunity to fall away from god comes to your door to do something really stupid from which you're gonna have to recover you need to learn to say no because grace will teach you how to say no thank you sweetie thank you sweetie <laughs> amen baby girl amen Right on cue. <laughs> it teaches you to deny ungodliness. You can actually you can actually have victory over temptation. Don't use the excuse all the time that I'm only human. Well who was God talking to when he wrote his Bible? Why did he put these things in there? If you're only human and you can't do it anyway. He wants us to have victory much more than defeat. You all know I'm chaplain of the skins. So we're winning. Yeah, that's a good thing. We, I haven't been here in a long time. We just haven't won very much over the past 15 seasons. And so I'm saying, this is really great. Now, the Green Bay Packers are coming in this weekend. And they're four and five. We're five, three, and one. And everybody's saying about Green Bay, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? They got Aaron Rodgers. They ought to be on top. They got some good players. What's wrong with wrong? They're losing. What's wrong with Green Bay? When you have more defeats than you've got victories, somebody ought to look at you in the face and say, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Grace has appeared, and it teaches you stuff. What aren't you learning? Why haven't you sat under its tutelage? I'm not asking you to be perfect, though that would be great. (laughs) Please strive for it. What we're looking for is consistency. Just have more wins and losses. In fact, I I don't think it's out out of the realm of possibility or expectation, whereby I should expect you to be playoff ready. Be 12 and 4 every year. Nobody calls a team this tw- By the way, 16 games in an NFL season. <laughs> 12 and 4 means you won, tw- four, won 12 lost 4. If you're 12 and 4, nobody ever calls you or confuses you with being a loser. Yeah. Everybody thinks, "Boy, you're good." Nobody even thinks about the four. Nobody remembers the four you lost. They just see you in the playoffs and you're ready for a Super Bowl. Mm. That's the way we ought to posture ourselves every year. I'm going to be 12 and 4 this year. Why? Not because of my own power. I can't do it on my own. But I'm going to allow grace to coach me. To teach me how to live best. And sometimes when you don't have it on the inside, you need some external stimuli. You need, you need some motivators. You need some boundaries that you put up there. Artificial ones that help you do the right thing. Boy, I, I have brothers around me to whom I'm accountable. In, in, in the NFL, they watch a lot of film. Coaches work between... 90 and 120 hours a week. I don't know. I I live around them. I say, can't y'all figure out a better way to do this? 90 and 100. 90 is the short. 120 sometimes. This week, because we have a game on Sunday night, and then we have a game on Thursday in Dallas, they're working 124 hours this week to try to prepare for both games. And I think it's just football. You, You need that much? I mean, it's just hitting people and running the ball. That's all it is. We have to plan because a game is won by six or seven plays, that's it. And we have to figure out how to strategize to put our players in the best position to win. And those six or seven plays will make all the difference in the world. We have to look at film and look at film and look at film and look at film and look at our own personnel and redeposit and reposition and do all kinds of things. We have to spend that much time. I said, okay, okay, I'm with you. I'm here to help you. I'll pray for you. (laughs) But what they do is they look at the film and they look at the the opposing team and they, they, they categorize them in two different areas. There are people who they call just another guy, Mm -hmm. JAG. That's what they are, just another guy. And then there are those people who categorize as APs or apps, a problem. Those a problem are those fellas that are amazing athletes. They run faster, they're quicker, they're bigger, they're stronger, and they perform better. Julio Jones for the Atlanta Falcons is a problem. He's a problem. (laughs) 6'3", 220 220 pounds, runs about a 4'4", strong as an ox, he's a problem. You have to figure out in your defense how you're going to stop him. If you stop him, you'll let everybody else try to beat you, but he's not going to. So there are problems, and then there are jags. I'm a (laughs) jag. I'm just another guy. I'm just another guy. And the only way I can be anything of significance is if I cry out to my God and say, Grace, teach me. I I put myself under your tutelage because I can't make any plays on my own. I can't. I desperately need grace to teach me. Coach me up. Teach me how to deny ungodliness. And so you need these external parameters sometimes and I, I, I didn't have it and so I've got other men around me th- to whom I'm submitted and I talk to them and say help me pray for me here I'm weak here I'm strong I need your assistance come with me in this walk with me in this I can't fall I can't blow it too much is riding on the line not only for my personal integrity but everything else for which God, God has given me stewardship I can't blow it so help me your leadership in this church probably 150 people that help in some capacity to lead different ministries we meet together on thursday morning once a month and we get together and we discuss i disciple we do a bible study and beforehand they come with answers questions and all kind and so it's great but one thing we do every thursday morning is we have a list of questions through which everybody must go with a person who's of the identical gender and they have to ask these questions of each other one have you been in the word of of god in prayer two have you spent adequate time with your family Three, have you been with a person of the opposite sex in a way that might be seen as compromising? Four, have you viewed anything in television and print in any other form that might be unseemly? Five, are you pursuing your calling? Six, are you giving on a regular basis to those who might have need? Seven, have you lied about any of the answers you just gave to these other six questions? (laughs) Why? Because none of us want to fall. We need external things. Grace coaches me. And it brings me to the level at which, man, if I can't do it on my own, i got to figure out a way to make it happen. Teaches me to say no. And for 34 years, at least I've been fairly consistent at saying no. But it's not just enough to say no. You need to know to say yes. So grace not only instructs you to deny ungodliness, and, and sensual desires and worldly passions, but it also teaches you to live sensibly, one, two, righteous and godly in this present age. Now, it teaches you that. If you will sit under its tutelage, it will teach you to be sensible. The word sensible there means sound of mind, able to make good decisions. That as you're taking this information, say, today in from this guy who's on stage and, and some of you are thinking you were drugged here by somebody and all you're trying to do is get out. Oh, I cannot wait to leave. uh, Will he please finish? I get it. And I'm almost done. You're you're happy. You'll be happy. Will he please? But the problem is, you're not thinking soundly. Because the information I'm giving you, as flawed as I might be, is that which is going to set you free and help you. Don't just listen to me. Listen to God that's speaking to you as I'm talking. He's trying to help you. If I'm saying things that are true even though it might be through a very flawed vessel and one you didn't expect to try to give you truth today and may not even like. I get it. Sometimes I don't like me, but I don't have any choice. I got to live with me. If you don't like me, listen to God. He's trying to help you and change the way you're thinking. Think soundly. Lord, what are you... You're actually talking to... It seems like this guy, he doesn't even know where I live, but he seems to be living in my place. He's reading my mail. He's talking about stuff. Did you tell him what I'm... Did you know? Did you tell him I was... What? No, I have no idea who you are. But God is speaking to you. And sensible response is to say, Lord, what do I need to do to change? How do I rearrange my my brain and my thought processes so I can can love you kind of like what he's saying? I can honor you kind of like what he's saying. I'm not living right. I want to. Thinking sensibly, living righteously, doing the right thing, doing the right thing. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Filled with what? The ability to do that after which they hunger. Be filled with the right ability, with the rightness to do right. If you hunger and thirst after it, you will do it. Now, let's face it. You're hungry and thirsting after something. And generally speaking, that after which you hunger and thirst, you, you do. So if you hunger and thirst after immorality, you're going to find opportunity. If you hunger and thirst after greed, you're going to steal something. If you hunger and thirst after that which is unrighteous, you will generally do unrighteousness. But if you hunger to do the right thing. If you wake up every day with your soul, which was bent left, now being bent right, to say, God, grace has appeared and it's instructed me and all I want to do is right today. If you hunger like that, every day of your life, you'll do much more right and be 12 and 4. Maybe 13 and 3. And then, godly. Sensibly righteous and godly. Godliness is that which is on the inside it's that which nobody can see but is reflected in proper mor- morality in, in right living you really can't tell though it's, it's better to always behave well than bad but you really can't tell all the times whether somebody is a real believer simply by the fact that they know the words of the songs and they can lift their hands in church they can give a hallelujah every once in a while you, you really can't tell because you don't know what's going on on the inside of the soul you accept the fact that they say they are But you can't verify it. Godliness is that which is not seen. And and the unseen is really who you are. Grace helps godliness to get on the inside and then be reflected best on the outside so that you are not acting whenever you come to church. You don't have to put on your church face. You don't have to put on your church speech. And it just comes out of who you are. Yes. The thing is, I close that I re- I require your staff as a church to be are really good Christians. I pay them to perform. They have to produce, or else they're not worthy of receiving a salary. But I am expecting more than just their production. I want them, when they are not employed, to be living what they believe. And not just consider themselves to be professional Christians. That they are lovers of God when they clock out. And every day of their life, all they're trying to do is make them happy. They're not trying to make me happy. They're not just trying to produce in order that they might you know justify their paycheck. They are actually trying to be people that can hear from Almighty God who sees all that we do not. Well done. Great Christians. Godliness on the inside. And the better Christian they are, the better they perform. The more they produce. Grace is there to coach you up in these things. It's appeared. Please don't ignore it. Listen to what he's got to say. And let your life be better. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. You're amazing. Thank you for helping us through grace today.